We come again this evening to look together at uh, Acts chapter 15. This is one of the great pivotal moments in the unfolding story of how the risen Jesus rules the world for the sake of his church and how the risen Jesus completes his revelation to the church through his apostles. Acts chapter 15. And we've been prepared for this chapter. We saw last time, and I'm going to do a bit of recap for you this evening. We've been prepared for this chapter by the Apostles Paul's returning visit to the churches that he had planted, the people he had seen converted to Christ. And uh, as he goes around these churches, as he encourages them in their faith, as he strengthens them, he strengthens them in the faith. He urges them to continue in the faith. We noticed that that is not their faith, their subjective trust in God. It is the objective faith, that is the faith we confess whenever we say the Apostles' Creed, for example, or we uh, say words from the Catechism or the Confession. It is the summary, the summation of what it is we believe. And so what he's doing is, as he goes around these early Christian congregations, he's saying to them, Remember what it was that you were taught right at the very beginning. What it was that you trusted. What it was that took you out of being a Gentile into being one of God's people. Or what it was that convinced you as a Jew that Jesus was the only Savior of the world. He takes them back to the beginning. And he says, continue in the faith. And then he links that appeal to them with the teaching that through many tribulations, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. What he does in that chapter 14 is he introduces us to this idea that the way in which the ongoing tribulation, the great prolonged tribulation of the church in this age will primarily center around the issue of false teaching. That the way in which the church is harried by Satan and is chased by the devil and his minions is that, to use the language, the metaphorical language of the book of Revelation, there is spewing from the ancient serpent's mouth a river of lies, a torrent of deception that is designed to trip up those who say they're believers to deceive those who are not believers and blind their minds to the truth of the gospel and to lead the church into error rather than into the truth as it is in Jesus. A torrent of lies. And as if to illustrate this, no sooner has the apostle warned the disciples then and warned us as we've been following the story that tribulation takes the shape of an attack on the truth of God, then you come to chapter 15 of this book and we are immediately confronted with an attack from hell on the church over the issue of what it is that makes a person right with God. To use the language of theology, it is an attack right at the very beginning of the church on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You say, how do we know that? We know that because the Apostle Paul has very helpfully, thank you Paul, very helpfully provided a kind of write-up 
on the de debate and the discussion that you can find actually in your Bible in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians reflects back on the events of this Jerusalem council and in that book the Apostle Paul succinctly states what the issue was. And here is how he puts it. First of all, by the way, he, he summarizes what these teachers who have come to Jerusalem have been doing. These teachers we read about in chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And if you can just for one moment not think about circumcision, the physical act for a moment, but, but see what they were saying was this, that Jesus plus circumcision saves. Jesus plus circumcision saves. Circumcision, not so much the action as the keeping of the law of Moses. In the performance of that action, that was the message that these people had brought to the folks there. And here's Paul's assessment. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because, in case you didn't get this, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, what does he mean by the word justification? The word to justify belongs to a word group that includes English translations like just and justify and justified and justification and righteousness and unrighteousness and so on. It's the same word. It has to do with a right standing with God. And whenever this word is used, it has a declarative meaning. It is to be declared righteous to be declared right with God. The way in which the word is used by Paul in the Scriptures, the way in which Jesus uses it in that very famous story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, when the tax collector is the one who goes home justified, declared right with God, it is to be seen that in all of those usages of the word, it nowhere means to be transformed by Jesus, or to be changed by Jesus, or to move from one state of being into another state of being in Jesus. It has nothing to do with behavior. It has nothing to do with obedience. It has nothing to do with changing your life, or changing your ways, or turning over a new leaf, or any of those metaphors that we use. It is a declaration by God that in God's eyes, in God's sight, this sinner, take the story Jesus told of the, of the sinner who goes into the temple and will not lift his eyes to heaven, but says, beating his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He goes home justified. He hasn't changed. He's not been transformed. Nothing yet has happened to his behavior. But that day he goes home and he is declared right with God. He is declared right with God. 
Now you need to be clear in the terminology that you use when you're thinking about salvation. Where does salvation begin? It begins there. Where, where God, on the basis of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished in his life and in his death, declares on the basis of what someone else did for you, that you are now right. You are now right with God. You are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, why did I tell you all that? <clears throat> Just because I could. Because you're a captive audience. No, it's because when you come to chapter 15 of Acts, that is the issue. That is what is going on in this chapter. That is why this chapter is so significant in, in the whole of redemptive history. It's so significant. Because what is at stake is the gospel. That's why when Paul is writing to the Galatians who have been infected by this false teaching, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a, a different gospel. It isn't the same gospel. And uh, he says what's happening is people are distorting the gospel. So what the apostle sees and what the early church was brought to see in this council in Jerusalem is that what was at stake was Christ. Is Christ sufficient to save me? Is Christ sufficient? Is he all that I need? Is he enough? Is it enough that Jesus died and that he died for me? Is it enough that Jesus lived his life, righteous life, and that his righteous life is credited to my account, and that I am accounted right with God because Jesus lived the righteous life I will never, ever live. And that he died the death I should have died. Is he enough for me? Is he sufficient for me? That is the issue this evening. And that's the issue that was raised then. It's still an issue today. It's still an issue today, as we saw last time, because the equation Christ plus circumcision equals salvation is now in some quarters Christ plus good works from a whole life lived equals salvation. No wonder Paul and Barnabas get into such sharp dispute and debate with these people. I hope you've got the language here. To be right with God is God's declaration that you are not guilty. Not only that you're not guilty, but yet you are as perfectly righteous as Jesus is because he sees you in the righteousness, dressed, clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you got that? It's a declaration, not a transformation. It's a declaration by God that on the basis of Jesus' sufficiency, you are right with him. Now, that gospel is essential for salvation. Jesus is sufficient for your salvation. But I want you to notice that that gospel doctrine of justification is not the only doctrine in the Bible. And it's not the only doctrine that's being taught to us in Acts chapter 15. Because Acts chapter 15 has been prepared for by what has gone on at the end of chapter 14 through many tribulations. This, 
what, what Paul is saying is we're going to be facing a problem about justification. That isn't the last doctrine that's going to be assaulted and attacked by the enemy who's spewing out lies from hell, deceiving the whole world. There are going to be other doctrines that will be attacked by the devil. So what are we going to do about it? What does Paul do about it? What is introduced at the end of chapter 14 that is going to set the tone for the future shape of the church of Jesus Christ? What does he do about it? Interestingly, he appoints elders in all the churches. The elders being appointed is specifically to deal with the lies that are being spewed out of hell that are troubling the church of Jesus Christ in the world. Speaking theologically, here's what I'm saying. When Paul goes back to visit these early little Christian congregations that have been formed out of the blue, out of nothing, out of paganism, and become Christians, he teaches them not only the doctrine of salvation, he teaches them ecclesiology. He teaches them the church as well. That's what he's doing at the end of chapter 14, and that's what we see manifested here in chapter 15. <clears throat> a friend of mine recently wrote a blog piece that shocked some good gospel people by saying this, the gospel is not sufficient in itself to ensure the continuation of the gospel. Now listen to that very carefully. The gospel is absolutely sufficient to save you and get you to heaven. But the gospel standing alone in and of itself cannot defend the gospel from its detractors, from its enemies. What has God done to defend the gospel? I'm going to read his little piece for you because he says it better than I could say it. This insufficiency of the gospel is surely why Paul, when writing to Timothy, does not simply tell him to preach the gospel. Yes, he certainly does tell him that. But as the aging apostle looks at the world around him and wonders how the gospel is to be preserved after the first generation of leaders directly commissioned by Christ dies out, he also tells Timothy to find ordinary men to appoint as elders. In other words, Paul sees that a church structure as well as a gospel message is vital to safeguarding the propagation of the gospel. The gospel itself is not sufficient to ensure the continuation of the gospel. The gospel needs people to preach it. It needs men, women, and boys and girls who will tell it to their friends. And because of these it, because these agents are fallen, because those who articulate the gospel say it the wrong way or give the wrong impression of what it is about, it needs a structure, a church structure, to safeguard the content of the gospel. And that's what we find going on here. We need the church's officers and we need the church's courts for the ongoing well-being of the gospel itself. Why? Because as I said, the very beginning we see in chapter 14 the ongoing uninterrupted tribulation of false teaching that is going to afflict the church throughout this age until the very end of the days. And so the office of elder was created to defend church doctrine, 
so that the church remains healthy and pure as it pushes out the gospel to the world. Now, interestingly, in the book of Acts, we find here in Acts 15 this crucial moment where Israel now is represented by the apostles and the elders. Up until now, we've seen references to the councils of the Jews, the rulers and elders of Israel, the chief priests and elders of Israel, the elders and the scribes of Israel. But now it's the apostles and the elders of the church. And just as Jewish elders and rulers and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem to judge the validity or otherwise of this new Christian movement, so now in Jerusalem the apostles and the elders are gathered together, verse 6, to consider the matter. In light of the great tribulation of false doctrine spewing up from hell, the office of elder is a most important feature of end-time provision for the church until the end of this age. You find that when you go to Paul later on in Acts chapter 20, when he's telling the elders at Ephesus, do you remember how he explains to them that when he'd been there, he'd explained the whole counsel of God. There was nothing they needed to know that he'd kept back from them. He told them the whole counsel of God. He reminds them that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. Not simply the church voting them into office, but the Holy Spirit has made them overseers with the job of shepherding, pastoring the church of God. And he warns them that from their own number, from their own number, there would be wolves that would emerge who would distort the gospel. He encourages them to guard the flock by being faithful to the word of the gospel. And he tells them what is at stake. What is at stake here is the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Here's where the church kicks in. One of its businesses is to guard the gospel and to ensure that that gospel is handed on intact from one generation to the next. Know what the gospel is, then pass it on to the next generation for the sake of the glory of Christ. And you see how interdependent these early churches were. They did not function as independent, autonomous units. They didn't just kind of create themselves out of the blue and then get on with it in their own small corner. You in your small corner and I in mine kind of theology. That, that isn't what you find in these early churches. So interconnected were they that the ultimate decision of the council is going to be binding on the churches throughout Galatia as well as at Antioch. And I want you to notice what happens at this council. This council of the church does not determine what the gospel is is. In other words, there is no fresh revelation going on at this church council. The apostles at this council don't come and say, well, the Lord's told me this, or the Lord's told me this other thing. There's nothing brand new that is taught by the apostles, by the power of the Spirit, that is new to the congregation. No, the gospel has already been revealed. It's already been revealed. Paul had it revealed to him. He tells us in Galatians 1, by a revelation of God, he'd been shown the gospel. Peter says the same thing. The gospel had already been revealed. At this council, there's no new revelation or prophetic word. There is a deliberative approach, as we'll see in a moment. There is no top-down decree. There is no one figure that dominates the scene. In fact, at this council, the defense of the gospel is made as the 
those who are gathered listen to three speeches, the last of which draws a conclusion. Let, let's look at these three speeches together. We didn't read that bit. We should have read that bit. I didn't tell Chris to read this bit, so it's not his fault this time. And so, Peter, first of all, Peter, and then fallen Barnabas, and then James. First of all, Peter talks about his divine commission. Verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Three times the apostle emphasizes faith, belief, trust is the basis of that relationship. Not ritual, not virtue. The real boundary between alienation and salvation is faith and faith alone. You can see that. Verse 7, people had believed. Verse 9, they had purified. God had purified these people's hearts by faith, not by some, some physical ceremonial washing. And it was through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish Christians were, verse 11, saved by believing, just like Gentiles were. In other words, Peter is going right to the heart of things. Jesus had often warned against an external compliance with outward devotion that doesn't impress God who knows our heart. And what Peter is saying here is he draws out the inference. He, a person's outward defilement does not prevent the heart-knowing, heart-reading God from seeing what is in the heart or from God giving a cleansing, a cleansing to those who believe the gospel. He can do that in your heart. He can wash your heart by the power of the word that you believe. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, says Peter in verses 8 and 9, and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts, how? By faith. By faith in what? By faith in Christ. And why by faith in Christ? Because Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Christ is all you need. And if you have Christ, your heart is purified. It's cleansed by the power of God. And Peter is not just simply content to restate the positive gospel position. He responds to his opponents. Do you notice these opponents of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone? He accuses them of a classic sin. The classic sin of the wilderness generation. Look at verse 10. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? They were testing God. He's referring back to the wilderness wanderings. Remember children of Israel following Moses out into the desert? They've gone a little ways. They're in the desert now. They're away from Egypt. They've got out of slavery. But the further away from Egypt they come, the more attractive Egypt looks. The further away from Egypt they get, the more attractive Egypt looks. They remember not the slave masters. They forget the whipping that they'd endured. They forget the long, hard days of pushing, shoving, lifting great rocks and stones to build the pyramids. They forget all those things and they remember that however hard it was in Egypt, there was always the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. I don't know how often you chew garlic, but they were looking forward to chewing garlic. And they complained to Moses. They complained to Moses. They wanted to go back to Egypt. 
because it was better there than it is here. And it was ridiculous, but it was an act of their rebellion against their leader. And what Peter is saying is this, do you know this? If you're going to keep on going on and on and on about salvation being by faith in Christ, plus circumcision, or plus any other of the laws of Moses, what you're doing in effect is saying this, we've come into Christ, let's now go back, let's turn the clock back, back to Egypt, back to Moses, back to the olden days. And let's add this little element to our understanding of salvation. Paul sees it's a matter of freedom. It's liberty. It's whether you've got liberty in Christ or bondage under the law. Paul sees the issue clearly in Galatians 5 and verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in your freedom. Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't turn the clock back to the law. The law doesn't save you. The law tells you you need salvation. The law is the mirror God puts before your dirty face to tell you you need to wash your face. But the law cannot wash your face for you. The law kills you. The law slays you. The law drives you to the Savior because you need a Savior. The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Paul understood this. He writes to the Philippians about this. And he recalls his previous life. You know, he's saying, Look, I wasn't a bad person before I became a Christian. Actually, I was a very good person. I was at the top of the tree as far as being good is concerned as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You really could look at my record. Paul said, there were no skeletons in my cupboard. There were no things I would be embarrassed for the world to see. As far as the law was concerned, I was righteous. As righteous as anybody can be without being God. And yet, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything but loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. See? If it was to do with the whole, the good works of a whole life lived, we would have faith plus a righteousness of our own to offer to God. Now you say, why are you going on about this? I'm going on about this because this kind of teaching is insidiously and invidiously pervading the churches today. And what I'm saying is, if it's faith in Christ plus the good works lived through a whole life lived, we are adding to Christ a righteousness that is our own. And Paul says that I may be found in Him not having a righteousness that is my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith in Christ. Here's Peter's exposition of the gospel. And then you have the apostolic 
confirmation. That was the divine commission. God had called him to preach that. And Peter defends salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and silences his critics at least for a time. And then we have in verse 12 the apostolic confirmation. The assembly fell silent. It was as if what Peter said just kind of got through there, broke through for a little while. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as Barnabas and Paul related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. By the way, you notice that they were, they were able to testify that God had signaled his purpose to include and welcome Gentiles without imposing circumcision on them or making further demands of them. And he'd done this by sending miracles. You see, even in the early church, miracles were unusual. They were performed by the, the apostles and their, deleg and their delegates. They were very narrowly ever used, and though they were there as confirmation of the apostolic office. They were signals that the risen Christ was at work in the world in that period through the apostles because they were going to bring fresh revelation from God. They were bringing the Word of God that we now have written in our Scriptures. So there's a divine commission given to Peter. There's the apostolic confirmation given by Barnabas and Paul that God was there doing the same things among Gentiles as he'd done among Jews on the day of Pentecost. And now thirdly we have the biblical conclusion. The spotlight falls on James. James wasn't an apostle. James was an elder in the church in Jerusalem. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Like the rest of the family, he had not, did not believe in Jesus during his earthly life and ministry. You people in your family don't believe in Jesus and wonder whether it's because your faith in Jesus isn't good enough, strong enough. Your testimony to Jesus isn't bold enough. James and his brothers did not believe in Jesus. Don't be surprised if there are people who don't believe in Jesus when you're a follower of him. Back to the story. After the resurrection, Jesus made a special visit to his brother, half-brother, James. And by this stage, James has grown as a Christian and has been appointed as an elder in the church and is one of the leading pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Paul calls them that in Galatians 2. And uh, he wrote the letter we call James, and there are linguistic similarities between the speech that he makes here and the letter James that you can read for yourself. But all I want you to notice is that what he does here in his speech as the elder who is presiding over this assembly in Jerusalem is that he takes the people to the scriptures. You see, Paul and Peter can speak on their own behalf as apostles of the Lord Jesus. But an elder has to speak out of the Bible has to speak out of the Scriptures and articulate what the Scriptures teach. And that is what James models for us here. He says that this welcoming of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of the promise and hope of the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me read from verse 13 to you. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me, Simeon, that's a Hebrew form of Simon, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles 
Whenever in the Bible God is said to visit people, it means that God actually intervenes, and He intervenes to save people, usually. Sometimes He intervenes or visits to punish His enemies. And in the past, Gentiles had been visited in judgment, but now God is going to visit Gentiles to save them. God visited the Gentiles, let me read on, to take from them a people for His name. That's what God is about to do. And he now quotes the words of the prophets. That, that idea of being a people for his name is the language of Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, where God chose Israel to be a special people from all the nations on the face of the earth. God is calling out people for Israel, Gentiles to join them to Israel, the Israel of God. In Zechariah chapter 2, Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in their midst and they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to them. He's a people being called out of the world. Then, then James quotes the words of the prophets, mostly from Amos chapter 9. Amos has been talking about judgment on God's own people. He says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon this sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. And that was going to be fulfilled in the Babylonian invasion and the exile of Judah, Judah's people. In the devastation of the land and the city and the temple. It made the promise of God to David look as if it was an empty promise. The tent of David, whether that's David's royal house, or whether that's the temple itself, looks like a heap of stones. It's fallen. It's desolate. But, says James, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus has turned that around. The resurrection of Jesus is the rebuilding of the fallen temple. The resurrection of Jesus is the resurrection of the One who is the very tabernacle of God. In Him, God abides and God rests. He is God with us. Jesus is Himself the final temple. And as He comes into the world, you remember, He said that to them. Destroy this temple. They thought He was talking about the building. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. David's broken tent, His broken temple has been rebuilt. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Why is God doing this? Why is God raising Jesus from the dead? Well, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name will seek the Lord. Paul writing to the Ephesians says this, you know, in Him, through Him, we all have access by one Spirit to the Father. And you are no longer strangers and aliens, as the Gentiles were, but your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Quotes from the Scripture. 
He says, this is what's happening. The resurrection of Jesus has been the building of a final temple in which men and women, boys and girls, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, are being built into a temple in which God dwells by the Spirit. This is God's doing. You, like living stones, says Peter, are being built into a spiritual house. Here is the final temple. Well, James's speech puts into perspective this great hope of the prophets that God is going to call out of the world to himself people from all the nations. You hear it in the language of Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And you see, these three speeches are designed to do what? They're designed to defend the gospel. And do you see what they do? They do exactly what church courts and assemblies do to this day. In this assembly, the apostles are only acting as fellow elders with the other elders. They don't, in this assembly, pull rank and bring in fresh revelation, but they submit to the deliberations of the assembled elders in this church assembly. And in that context, where the apostles take part and James takes part through a deliberative process of reports heard, interpretations given, through this church court that has power of jurisdiction over local churches who are represented there by their fellow elders. The issue of the gospel is addressed and the articulation of what the gospel means is addressed in a clear way. You see, this kind of assembly is, it has no authority to deal with civil matters. It has no authority to speak into political situations. It has no authority to change the world. It has authority to deal with ecclesiastical, churchly, doctrinal issues. And that's what it does. It aims at a conclusion. A conclusion that is binding on the churches. And before ever the letter is sent out, the fundamental thing that is established is how the gospel should be understood. And the gospel is grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Same gospel today. Same need for the church today to defend the gospel. You notice again, the church doesn't create it. The church doesn't make the gospel. The church doesn't dream it up. The church merely recognizes it, defends it, proclaims it, gets it out, gets it in, and gets it right. The gospel. We can be grateful that Christ, who runs the church from heaven, has appointed shepherds in the church whose corporate commitment to the word of God and the confession of the church is such that they are prepared to reaffirm the gospel for the ages. And the upshot of this particular event was in Acts 16, verses 4 and 5, this. That as the apostles then revisited all these churches that had been affected by this false teaching, 
and delivered the message from the elders who were in Jerusalem. So we're told the churches were strengthened in what? In the faith. In the faith, the doctrine. Strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. I want to put this to you this evening. If you were to die today and God were to ask you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, anything, anything like Jesus plus. It's no way, Jose. Seriously. You add anything to Jesus, you subtract from Jesus. He's enough. He's enough. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight you'd give us a clear, straightforward, simple view of what the very heart, crux, the hinge on which everything turns, the article by which the church stands or falls. But when it comes to our relationship with you, what matters most and only is that we are trusting in Christ alone. Jesus, his blood, his righteousness is all our plea. Father, enforce that to our minds and hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.